I don't know that we can be absolutely certain as to what came first, John's letters or John's gospel. I tend to lean towards John's gospel being the first thing that he wrote. And in that gospel, which is not what we're studying, we're studying his first letter, uh, he intends to communicate to the church and to the world that Jesus is in fact God. He also intends to communicate that Jesus is man. Uh, he is writing to combat against some of the popular heresies and false teachings of that day. And so he's writing to prove these things and revealing to us the person of Jesus Christ. And as we look through that letter, we find more uh, about Jesus than the fact that he is God and man. One of the areas that I, I was thinking about this week is how Jesus is a helper to people. And, and nearly in every chapter, we see Jesus aiding and assisting and, and, as we'll talk about later, advocating on behalf of people. In chapter 2, it is the wedding at Cana, uh, the first recorded miracle of Jesus. His mother comes to him and says, hey, we need more wine. What does Jesus do? He steps in to help in the situation. In chapter 3, he is helping Nicodemus come to an understanding of what eternal life means. In chapter 4, he is helping the woman at the well. She did not know she needed help at that moment, or she did not know that Jesus would be the help that he was, but he steps into her life to help. In chapter 5, it's an invalid at the pool of Bethesda. In chapter 6, uh, we find a diabolical situation where he is feeding the people and they want more food, but he confronts them and many of them leave. And I love Peter's words at the end of that when he says, are you going to leave too? And Peter says, where would we go? You have the words of eternal life. You're the one who can help us. There's nowhere else we could find that help. In chapter 9, it is the man who was born blind, and Jesus makes the mud and puts it on his eyes. In chapter 11, it's a distraught Mary and Martha who are grieving the loss of Lazarus, and it's also a dead Lazarus who Jesus intervenes and helps. The other Gospels reveal the names and situations of people like Jairus, whose daughter was sick and then dead, uh, the woman with the issue of blood, lepers, other blind, Jesus was there to help them. But how does he help us? How does Jesus aid us? And, and this could be a series of sermons. Obviously, we're going to try to contain ourselves to the two verses that Chuck read for us. But in the previous section, John's instruction was that we would walk in the light by confessing our sins rather than hiding our sins. And the assurance that he gives us is that the blood of Jesus cleanses us from our sin and that he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Those are two incredible promises. Two incredible promises. And I would encourage you, if you weren't able to be here last week, uh, go online, watch or listen to last week's sermon. It's, it's crucial for where we're going in the letter to John to help us to understand what it is to truly walk in the light, what it is to have genuine fellowship with Christ, what it is to avoid what we're commonly tempted to fall into, and that is hypocrisy. And putting on a front and a facade for the world in front of us when we, we are dealing with a lot of inward turmoil. Well, this week's John's, John's instruction moves us from confession of sin to this, fleeing from sin, resisting sin. Uh, John begins this section revealing his great affection for the reader. He says, my, my little children, and that, that isn't an expression meant to demean them as if they're youthful, ignorant, or immature. It's an expression of his great uh, parental-like love for his readers. 
and by extension us. John loves the saints. And from his heart full of affection and concern, John reveals that he's writing these things so that you might not sin. So that you might not sin. John knows the pain that sin brings to us. John knows the pain that that sin brings to others. He knows the pain that sin brings to our Heavenly Father. And he wants us to do all that we can to avoid sin and to avoid the pain. He's not teaching perfectionism. We covered this a little bit last week, and we'll see it again in this point. The very next line says, if anyone does sin. And so John understands that perfectionism isn't on the table. But this brings up a good and painful question that I was thinking through this week, and I hope you'll think through in this moment. How eagerly do we work to avoid sin? How much work do we put in to avoid falling into or giving into the temptation to sin? And I fear for myself and for many of us, we have grown all too comfortable with sin. It's okay to be a little grouchy, right? Or to complain and grumble about drivers or the situations we deal with at work. Uh, Failing to open up God's Word and and pray is another thing that we often excuse. That's not that big of a deal. Letting bitterness settle into our hearts is often excused. Engaging in a, a little sexual immorality, a little sexual immorality is excused. Gossiping about my neighbors, my family, we excuse it. But John encourages us to flee from this. Resist this. Paul actually tells Timothy, flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness. He tells the Colossians, put the sin to death. Kill it so that you might have life. To the Romans, he writes this, you you should abhor or you should detest what is evil. And you should hold fast to what is good. This is why it is so very important for us to open up this book as often as we can and be reminded of what is good. This book helps us to understand what is right and wrong. And when we avoid this, we're left to our own imaginations to determine what is sin and what is not sin. Because I can then look at society and say, well, I'm not as bad as that person, therefore I'm not really a sinner, or I'm not really sinning in this situation. Or I can uh, compare myself to others around me, or I can compare myself to whatever I'm imagining in my mind. But God's Word, it typically cuts hard and fast lines to say this is sin, this is not. This is what you should detest. This is what you should love and pursue. We need to be in God's Word. But what happens when we do sin? Sin is going to rear its ugly head. And when that happens... How do we respond? I think for many, we fall into despair. And we begin to cycle. The guilt just begins to plague us. And so one sin may lead to another sin. And we, we, we just become despondent with our inability to, to do what is right. On the other hand, sometimes we just say, I'm just going gonna, gonna to do better. I'm going to pull myself up from my bootstraps. 
I'm going to put a plan in place here, and I'm going I'm to beat this sin. Both of those are really inappropriate approaches. John offers a clear and hopeful set of instructions here where he says this, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Let's talk about Jesus, our advocate this morning. What does it mean that Jesus advocates for us before the Father? The word here is a word that I'm going to share with you, parakletos or paraclete. And it's a word that is often used and most often used by Jesus to describe the work of the Holy Spirit. In the upper room on the night before Jesus crucifixion as he is giving what we know as the upper room discourse John 13 all the way through 17 four times Jesus uses this word to describe the work of the Holy Spirit that will happen in the lives of the disciples one of those verses is John 14 verse 16 and it says and I will ask the father and he will give you another helper I like that word another helper I am your helper but another helper, another paraclete will come to be with you forever. It's one who helps. It's one who assists. It's one who offers aid. And here in the context, John describes Jesus as this paraclete. And every English translation I looked at translates it to say that Jesus is our advocate. Advocate. When I was a child... I occasionally found myself in trouble. And I know that is so hard for you to believe. And oftentimes when that trouble would happen, mom would shuttle me to my room and I would be banished there, what felt like for hours. Uh, certain things would be taken away from me, privileges, toys, video games, whatever that may be. But sometimes, on occasion, I would send my brother to go ask my mom if it was okay for me to come out of my room now. And I imagine that conversation, many of you had the same experience, uh, would play out something like this. Mom, Josh has been in the room for over an hour. I think he's really sorry uh, for what he did. Uh, I think he's a changed person. I think he's learned his lesson. Would it be okay for him to come out? And we can play now. In that scenario, my older brother Randy was acting as an advocate. Now, knowing Randy, that probably never happened. He probably went out there and said, I think he needs to stay in there a little bit longer. <laughs> but that's how I imagine that going down when I would send him. When I sin against my heavenly father, my older brother Jesus acts as an advocate. Jesus speaks on my behalf, and we can imagine the conversation going something like this. Father, Josh has sinned. He's aware of his transgression on the cross. I took that sin. I took the wrath that that sin deserves upon myself. We cannot hold this against him. I want to be careful when I make a statement like that, because it's not as if the Father is just waiting to give us a one-two punch to punish us. I, I want us to be careful that we understand the Father is the one who sends our advocate. He loves us, but, but this is the role that Jesus plays. This is one of the glorious ways that Jesus advocates or helps or, or intercedes for us. He also helps, this is what we learned last week, by cleansing us. 
He is helping us by cleansing us from sin. He is helping us uh, by, by helping us to understand that there is forgiveness. I would encourage you also to think about the fact that Jesus advocates on our behalf when we're in seasons of trials and suffering. He understands what it is to endure the trials and the suffering of this world. Let me show you another verse that adds some color to this glorious statement that's made. We have an advocate. In Romans 8, we, we learn of the Spirit's intercessory work on our behalf. And in those early verses, when you don't know what to pray, when the, the burdens are so great, the words can't come out, the Spirit is interceding on your behalf in those moments. But we learn a little bit later in that chapter that Jesus also is interceding and advocating. Romans 8, 33 and 34, here's what it reads. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect, God's children? It's God who justifies. And who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. And more than that, who was raised and who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who is to condemn you when Jesus himself, who died and rose again, is presently interceding on your behalf? So what qualifies Jesus to advocate for us? Well, the answer is right there in verse 1. Jesus Christ, the righteous. Jesus Christ references both his human name, Jesus, which means Yahweh saves, and Christ, his title, the anointed one, the Messiah, the, the promised one that would come. But, but John adds an adjective to the end of this, the righteous. The righteous. Jesus is able to advocate for we, the unrighteous, because he is righteous. He is perfect. He lived the life that no human was able to live in perfect obedience to the Father. Hebrews 4 says this, Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who in every respect has been tempted as we are. Notice those next three words. Yet without sin. So because of this, let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. We dare not advocate for ourselves. There's one thing I've learned from crime dramas and things I've seen on TV. Don't ever represent yourself in a courtroom. You need a lawyer. You don't know the jargon. You don't know the first thing about it. And the thing we take away from Jesus, our advocate, is we dare not represent ourselves before the Father because we are not righteous in it of ourselves. We stand before him in the righteousness of Jesus, our advocate. But his advocacy work isn't just predicated upon righteousness. Atonement is also necessary. Verse 2 reads this. He, Jesus, 
is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now I know that word propitiation might as well be a foreign language. It's not a word that we use that I know of anywhere outside of the Bible. And because of that and because of the obscurity, many translations that you guys are reading today will say something like atoning sacrifice. And I'm okay with that. But the word here shows up one other place in this letter. Chapter 4, verse 10. You can flip over there if you'd like. We'll get there sometime before the end of the year. And it says this, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation. Halasimas for our sins. It shows up a few places in the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, Leviticus, Psalms, Numbers, uh, Ezekiel, uh, a couple of other places. And all of these verses that it shows up in in the Old Testament, it has to do with the sacrificial system. It has to do with sacrifices that were being made to make atonement for the sins of the people. Blood being sprinkled on the altar that would, would temporarily make atonement for the people. The day of atonement, uh, when that one day a year, the high priest would enter into the Holy of Holies and sprinkle blood on the mercy seat there one day a year. It's fascinating. The whole Levitical system, all of those sacrifices we read about it, some of you are in your yearly Bible reading plan and you're about to hit Leviticus and you're, you're going to read about cutting sinews and burning things and here's the proper and appropriate way to do this. All of that anticipates the coming of one final, ultimate, perfect sacrifice that would put an end to a temporary system because of the permanence and the finality. Permanent atonement would be made. But what is John getting at when he refers then to Jesus as our propitiation? Uh, there, are, there are often two camps, it may be better stated, two warring factions uh, that form when it comes to this particular word. Uh, the, the, the understanding of the first camp would be this. The word refers to forgiving and cleansing us from our sins. I think the theological word they use oftentimes is expiation, that our sins are, are taken away, they are cleansed. And this, this focuses on the removal of our sin, that Jesus removes our sin, and it is removed by His perfect sacrifice. The second camp understands this word to refer to appeasing or satisfying God's wrath towards sin. And so the focus here is not really solely on our condition that needs to be remedied, but it's focused on a condition in God that needs to be remedied, that justice must be satisfied or served. I consider maybe the first camp PG, the second camp PG-13, because we're dealing with the wrath of God in relation to sin. And the issue that many have with appeasing God's wrath is, is the issue of appeasing God's wrath towards sinners. Um, the theological statement here that you may read about when you're up late at night studying your theology books is what's called penal substitutionary atonement. 
When you think of penalty or you think of the penal system, the idea that uh, justice must be meted out, this idea of penal substitutionary atonement, they believe this to be barbaric. In one camp, they believe this to be uh, similar to the wicked practices of the pagans who would often even offer human sacrifices in order to appease their vengeful gods. Stephen Chalk provides a classic rebuttal as he thinks of Jesus' propitiation, a wrath-bearing sacrifice, as a form of cosmic child abuse, in his own words. He says, it's a vengeful father punishing his son for the offense he has not even committed. Another bishop would say this, neither do I want a God who would kill his own son. In this camp, just to maybe bring this down to a level of understanding, they'll change words to certain songs. We have a song that we sing around here quite a bit, In Christ Alone. And we sing that line, Till on the cross where Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. While every sin on him was laid, here in the death of Christ I live. They will change that till on the cross as Jesus died, the love of God was satisfied or the God of love was glorified and there's about a dozen other options that you could use to change the verbiage to avoid that. I want you to listen. John Stott pastored many years ago All Souls Church in London and he addresses their concerns with a couple of points. First, he writes this, God's wrath is not arbitrary or capricious. It bears no resemblance to the unpredictable passions and personal vengefulness of the pagan deities. Instead, it is settled, controlled by holy antagonism to evil. And that's what we see in the story of the Scriptures. We see the evidences of God's wrath towards humanity in many places, places as we move through the Scriptures. And it is never out of control. It is never out of some fit of rage. It is controlled. Secondly, the means by which His wrath is averted is not a bribe from us or some third party. What is the means by which propitiation takes place? It's His initiative. And this would bring me to this point. The, the distinguishing point as we think about their critiques of the idea that God's wrath would need to be satisfied is love. The, the Father is the one who initiates the means of His own propitiation. He knows He needs to be satisfied and justice must be meted. And so He sends His Son into the world out of love. And then there's Jesus who willingly participates out of love for the Father and out of love for us. Philippians 2 speaks of this. And so you might say, Pastor, which side do you align with? I certainly believe that God's wrath must be satisfied. I believe in penal substitutionary atonement. However, I see forgiveness of sin and the satisfaction of God's wrath as two sides of the very same coin. You can't have one without the other. They, they both are necessary. Without forgiveness and cleansing, God would still have reason to punish me. And so there, there are 
there are people that I will read and people that you will read who will fall into this camp. They don't like the idea of God's wrath and uh, penal substitutionary atonement. And I, I want to be a pastor who warns you and, and just cautions you in certain areas. Uh, N.T. Wright is a scholar that I have some of his books, and they have been great resources to me, and much of his theology is great, but he does not believe in penal substitutionary atonement, and you'll find it when you get to his places in the Gospels. One of the resources that we've recommended uh, quite a bit over the last few years is the Gospel Project. They put out incredible videos and things that are very helpful. Um, they're a little watery on this. Every time they get to this issue, it doesn't get very specific, and I can, I can kind of hear them uh, trying to, to, to skirt around this particular topic. So we just want to be mindful. But I want to be as clear as I can be. I want to make this point. You and I are sinners. A holy God, light as we saw him described last week, this holy God of justice cannot overlook sin. He cannot simply sweep it under the rug and say, it's done. It has to be dealt with. The wages of sin is death is the promise that we see in the scriptures. If your friend was murdered, and in the courtroom the judge looked at the accused who was 100% guilty and agreed that he was guilty of murdering your friend, but decided to let the guilty party go. You would be furious. Don't you like mercy? Don't you like compassion? And you would say, yeah. But I also like justice. Why do you like justice? Why do we so demand justice? And we do this... Society-wise, we do this in our home when we get accused by our spouse of doing something we didn't do. We want justice in that moment. What is that? It's the image of God in us. Our God is a holy God, and justice must be accomplished. You and I, because of our sin, deserve God's wrath and to spend eternity separated from Him in a place that has become known as hell, a place that is devoid of God. A place where he is not and there is therefore no mercy, there is no grace, there is no kindness or goodness present. But God is not simply a God of justice, he is also a God of compassion. And he is a God who shows his compassion towards sinners like you and me. And so he is compelled in and of himself to rescue us from ourselves from our sin and from his own wrath that we deserve. Enter Jesus. Jesus the righteous. He enters creation with the purpose of seeking and saving the lost and the culmination of his work took place on the cross where he became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. On the cross, Jesus is, as John the Baptist said, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. On the cross, Jesus is, as John declares Him to be here in 1 John, our propitiation. 
He bears the wrath that we deserve. This is why he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the answer should sting a little bit. He is forsaken so that you and I don't have to be. He endures the hell that you and I deserve so that we'll never experience a moment of it. This is why he's forsaken. You and I are why he is forsaken. He's there on the cross making atonement once and for all for our sins. At the cross, we not only find forgiveness, but we find reconciliation and peace. God's wrath is satisfied through the atoning death of Jesus. And when we, when we take into consideration this, this word that is used and the way it's used throughout the Old Testament, we, we have to understand because of Christ and His propitiation, we are not only forgiven, but God's wrath has been satisfied. Finally, we come to John's concluding statement. He wants to make it clear that Jesus' atoning work is sufficient for all, for the sins of the whole world. Now, some stumble here and view this statement to mean that all will be saved. Uh, Because Christ made atonement for the sins of the whole world, uh, this is a universalist position that some hold that says, in the end, all will be saved because Christ's atonement was sufficient. The problem is the position ignores many other places that we find in Scripture that require an expression of our faith for salvation to be applied. The clearest of these would be Romans 10. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Faith must be expressed. One commentator summarizes it this way, that Jesus offered the atoning sacrifice for the sins of the whole world cannot mean that all people's sins are automatically forgiven so that all are the inheritors of eternal life. He goes on to say this, His death was sufficient to deal with the sins of the whole world, but that His sacrifice does not become effective until people believe in So my question today is, have you professed your faith in Jesus? Have you put your trust in Jesus? Do you know that you are a sinner? Do you know that as a sinner you are under the the wrath of God? Do you know that Jesus came and offered His life in order that you might have an advocate with the Father. That atonement might be made on your behalf. Trust Him today. You need an advocate. You need atonement. For those who have trusted in Jesus... Rejoice in Him. Rejoice that that you have an advocate at the right hand of the Father right now. Rejoice that full atonement has been made on your behalf. 
You see, this is the gospel truth that keeps us from despairing over our sin. When we're reminded of our advocate and our atonement, Satan wants to kick us in those moments where we are guilty. We have sinned. And he wants to keep us there. I've always so appreciated this line from a sermon that Martin Luther preached many centuries ago. A man who struggled with the guilt of the life he had lived before. And here's what he says. So when the devil throws your sins in your face and declares that you deserve death and hell, tell him this. I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And where He is, there I shall be also. What of it? The gospel truth here should also be our motivation for Christian service. The gospel truth here should also be our motivation for putting sin to death and fleeing sin. That's the message that John is sharing in this text. That you would avoid sin, that you would flee from sin. We have an advocate and an intercessor. It should be our motivation for fellowship and worship as well. And so in response to Jesus, your advocate, your atonement, will you today walk in the light? Will you confess your sin? Will you flee from it? Where do you need to make confession today? What are the plans that, that you do need to put in place so that you can begin to put sin to death in your life? How are you daily going to remind yourself of the glorious gospel so that you might be motivated to be uncomfortable with the sin and to grow more comfortable with the righteousness of Christ that's ours in Him. I'm going to ask you to bow with me this morning. My little children, I write these things to you that you might avoid sin. If you are here today and you would say, I do not have an advocate in Jesus. I've never put my trust in Him. Atonement has not been made for my sin. It hasn't been applied to me because I've never expressed my faith in Him. Then I invite you today to believe. Make that profession. If that's something you have questions about, please make your way to the prayer room that's here to my right. And we would love to open up God's Word and help you to gain greater understanding. But for the broader body who's here today who would say, I'm, I'm trusting in Christ. Oh, I just hope you leave today rejoicing in the person of Jesus, in the work of Christ, what he has accomplished and continues to accomplish.